Well, good morning, Hillside family. It's good to be with you, and good morning as well to all of you that are joining us um, online. Today, we're going to close our series in the first two chapters of Colossians, and we'll also look at the first four verses of chapter three. Please follow along with me in your Bibles or on your sermon outline. Colossians chapter 2, 20 through 3, 4. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the, to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Well, this morning, we'll be thinking about the believer's distinctly Christian perspective on life. Paul wrote this letter to the young Colossian church because he knew that they would need to have a strong mental view of Jesus and a mindset that was shaped by the gospel. They needed this so they could successfully combat the false teaching that was hovering around the church and grow into maturity. For us today, Paul points us to what is truly essential and fundamental for us as Christians, Jesus and the pure gospel. We've been seeing throughout our studies of Colossians that we aren't immune to the dangers that face the Colossian church. The Colossians were enticed and confused by the perspectives of the mystics, the ascetics, and the legalists who had their own unique spin on a Jesus plus gospel. Today, we find ourselves enticed by modern day Jesus plus gospels, like Jesus plus this particular type of worship music, or Jesus plus this set of spiritual practices, or Jesus plus our political viewpoint, or Jesus plus our church's traditions. Tyler reminded us last week of how our own cultural and personal biases can affect our community and our witness as light in the world. Even though Paul commended the Colossians for their faith, he still found them vulnerable to errors creeping into their minds. Here's the thing about errors. We're more prone to make them while we're learning new things and making new discoveries whether we're learning to walk and talk as a baby, or we're learning about Jesus and matters of faith as the Colossians were, or making scientific discoveries. For example, according to a recent statistical study, 
biomedical scientists may expect that their discoveries are going to be false 25% of the time. This means one quarter of the time these experts in the biomedical field get it wrong. Why? Because these scientists are still learning and in the early stages of discovery, even learned people can get it wrong. So we can see why the Colossian church, who was in the early stages of discovering Jesus, would be confused by the so-called experts in religion. Well, this vulnerability to error doesn't just happen in science. It happens in the arts as well. Listen to the story of how some fine arts experts were vulnerable to error creeping in. On October 18, 1961, New York's Museum of Modern Art opened its doors to a new exhibition featuring some of the last works of Henry Matisse. It would turn out to be one of the most embarrassing days for the world-renowned museum because one of Matisse's paintings, Le Bateau, or The Boat, was mistakenly hung upside down. The error went unnoticed for 47 days. None of the museum's curators or staff noticed. Not even Matisse's son, Pierre, who was an art dealer, noticed. And none of the more than 116,000 visitors that came during those 47 days noticed either. That is until an eagle-eyed stockbroker named Genevieve Havert discovered that the painting was hung upside down. She came to that conclusion after visiting the show three times. But it was her familiarity with the artist Matisse that convinced her she was right about the museum's error. Ms. Habert, she even purchased an exhibition catalog and she did a side-by-side -side comparison to prove to a museum guard that she was right, but to no avail. It wasn't until she contacted the New York Times that the director of the exhibit finally flipped Matisse's painting right side up. Well, my friends, we live in a world where Jesus and the gospel are casually viewed. Much the same way Matisse's painting was casually viewed by thousands of visitors and even by the art experts. It took an eagle eye who knew Matisse's work so well that she was able to discern that the artist's painting had been wrongly displayed. Do we have this same deep level of familiarity with the master artist, Jesus, and with his masterpiece, the gospel? Can we say that we know Jesus and we know what the Bible says about him? Are we equipping, mentoring, and protecting our young believers with God's word? Are we passionate about having the pure gospel of Jesus Christ rightly and gloriously displayed? And not just displayed in our individual lives, but also shown through the hillside community as light in the world. Paul wanted the church to have an eagle eye 
like his, able to spot whenever Jesus and the gospel are being wrongly portrayed. Now, I propose that, like the Colossians, most of us can be intrigued by a new perspective that comes our way. We may even entertain adopting a new perspective if the message or the messenger is compelling enough, passionate enough, or just plain loud enough. But how do we, as followers of Jesus, gain a true perspective on the messages and the messengers in our lives? Our perspective on the Christian life needs to be shaped and based on this strong mental view of Jesus. Well, Paul began his letter to the Colossians by giving them a true perspective of the supremacy of Christ. Paul knew that for the Colossians to have a correct perspective of the false teachers, he first had to hold up Jesus, the one who puts everyone and everything in true perspective. Paul gives us a great example to follow here. Remember how Paul exalted Jesus in the Christ hymn of chapter one? One scholar noted how Paul highlights the cosmic aspects of Christ's person. Those cosmic aspects are seen nowhere else in Paul's writings, but more importantly for us today, those cosmic aspects of Jesus are seen in no other human being. We won't reread the Christ hymn this morning, but I hope that you'll go home and you'll reread it again because Paul gives us a perspective of Jesus as supreme over everything and over everyone, which of course includes the false teachers. Paul wants the church to embrace and to guard this mental view of Jesus. He is the image of God in the flesh, the creator and the sustainer of all things. He is the reconciler of all things through his death on the cross. The implications being that Jesus alone is our true source of life. The more we know Jesus, the more mature we'll be in our faith, and the less we'll be threatened by false teachers and false gospels. In our passage today, Paul moves from putting the false teachers in proper perspective to Christ to putting their false Jesus plus gospels in proper perspective to the true gospel. Paul begins in verse 20 by reminding the church of the reality of the believer's union with Jesus in his death, making them dead to the elemental spirits of the world. Paul had already warned them of these elemental spirits back in verse eight, when he wrote this, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So why would Paul warn the Colossians about these elemental spirits, also called the basic principles of the world, if they'd already died to them? It must mean that the Colossians had a choice of which reality they would live in. 
and sisters and brothers, we also have a choice of which reality we are going to truly believe and live into. Do we live into the rules and regulations that are not according to Christ? And in essence, allow ourselves to be taken captive by worldly philosophy and spiritual deception? Or do we live into the reality of Galatians 5.1? For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul said back in Colossians 2.3 that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This truth tells us that Jesus does not just possess some wisdom and some knowledge. He has all of it. So why? Why would we settle for an appearance of wisdom when we have the greatest treasure trove of wisdom available to us in Jesus? In 1 Corinthians 1.24, Paul calls Jesus the wisdom of God. Compared to the wisdom of Jesus, these false teachers, they could only offer a shadowy form of wisdom that was not according to Christ. You might have noticed that verse 20 begins with the word if. But Paul is not questioning whether believers have died with Christ. Rather, this is Paul's way of presenting the argument that since believers have died with Christ, they should not live as if they're still alive in the world and subject to its regulations. Do not touch, do not handle, do not taste. Paul has already stated the believer's death with Christ as a fact back in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul repeats this reality of being buried in baptism with Christ in his letters to the Romans, chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We walk in newness of life that does not belong to this world, but rather to Jesus's unseen kingdom. This concept of the believer being dead to the world was a challenging truth for the Colossians to fully grasp and live by. But then this reality of being dead to this world while still physically living in it, it can be difficult for us to wrap our minds around as well, can't it? But this is our reality. We died with Christ. Meditating on Galatians 2.20 can help us better understand our union with Jesus in his death and our new lives in the world right now. We have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the life we live now in the flesh in this world, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. 
Finally, in verse 23, Paul characterizes the elemental spirits of the world as having no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These elemental spirits are powerless in controlling the sinful desires of our flesh. Only the believer's union with Christ supplies the power through the Holy Spirit not only to stop the indulgence of the flesh, but to put it to death. Paul writes in Galatians 5.24, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Well, as we've taken some time to just compare what the world offers to us and what Jesus offers us, it becomes easier to understand Paul's urgency in asking, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? My friends, the amazing truth embedded in these three verses of Colossians 2 is that we belong to Jesus and his kingdom, not to this world, with its man-made deceptions of how to live a holy and spiritual life. The reality check for us as Christ's people is to remember we're connected to the supreme source. Jesus said in John 10.10 that he came to give us abundant life. So we never have to look anywhere else. Therefore, whenever we're tempted to elevate human wisdom, religious practices, or mystical experiences above Jesus, We must remember to exalt Jesus so that all the messages and all the messengers in our lives are put in proper perspective to him. No Jesus plus false gospels for us. Only Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. Paul declares in Colossians 3-4 that Christ is our life. He begins chapter 3 by leading the Colossians, and us too, to look at the Christian's life in the world from a very particular perspective. Standing on this reality, the reality that we died with Christ and we've been raised with him. In other words, all through the lens of the pure gospel. In these four opening verses of Colossians 3, Paul presents us with three Jesus realities. He does this to sharpen our mental image of Jesus and to give us hope. Colossians 3 is very near and dear to my heart. Last summer, Colossians 3, 1 through 17 was a balm to my soul during the pandemic. I was drawn to it. I read it over and over, and I memorized it. Amidst all the uncertainty, all the chaos, all the fear in our world, the truths of who Jesus is and who I am in him grounded me, comforted me, and gave me hope. The Holy Spirit personalized God's words in Colossians 3 to remind me of my real life in Christ, a truth that helped me to see above and beyond my life during the pandemic. At Hillside Family, this chapter 
is truly about our corporate identity in Christ. Remember, Paul was writing to the church in Colossae. I'm so thankful that I was given the opportunity to study this passage a year later in preparation for this sermon, because now I can appreciate it in its intended context for the strengthening of the church as we set our minds on Jesus. So in the time that's left, I want us to do just that. I want us to set our minds on Jesus by looking at three Jesus realities found in these four verses of Colossians 3. Jesus reality number one is found at the beginning of verse one. Jesus is alive. He is resurrected from the dead. And as sure as Jesus has been raised from the dead, we have been raised with Christ. Jesus's reality defines our reality as believers. Jesus' reality number two is found in the second half of verse one. Jesus is above in heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God. The right hand position was considered to be one of importance and significance. And historically in the Bible, it was considered a place of honor, strength, and blessing. Mark 16, 19 records Jesus's ascension this way. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. The risen Jesus is in heaven and in a place of honor with God the Father, and he is seated. Hebrews 10:12 says that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus sat down in a place of honor because his work of salvation is finished. Reality number three is found in verse four. Jesus will return. Verse three tells us that our real life is hidden with Christ in God. We can't see Jesus right now. He's hidden from our sight in heaven. But verse four, it holds out a promise to us that Christ will appear one day in all his glory. And when he does, we who have been hidden in Christ, we also will appear with him in glory. Well, in light of all these tremendous Jesus realities that Paul's been reminding of us in the book of Colossians, how do we corporately seek and set our minds on things above? What even are the things above? Well, we might be tempted to think that this is just a command to look at heaven and our future hope, which is a great thing for us to do as believers. After all, at the beginning of Colossians, in, in chapter one, verse five, Paul pointed to the Colossians and he said, we have a hope laid up for us in heaven. Charles Spurgeon called this hope laid up for us in heaven a very marvelous hope. And he said, ours is a hope which demands nothing of time or earth, but seeks it all in the world to come. When, Surgeon, when Spurgeon spoke about these things, he pointed to the new heavens and the new earth. 
for pastor and author, Ray Stedman, The Hope Laid Up for Us in Heaven, it wasn't a reference to heaven after death, but to the invisible spiritual kingdom that surrounds us on all sides right now. For Stedman, thinking about things above was about the gospel that reveals there's hope for us immediately and coming from that invisible spiritual kingdom which surrounds us right at this very moment. Both Spurgeon and Stedman point us to Jesus's kingdom, one to the kingdom we look forward to with the new heavens and the new earth, and one to the invisible kingdom of heaven that's right here, right now, and within you. They present us with the already and the not yet of Jesus's reign. But giving that overarching reality of the aboveness and the supremacy of Christ that permeates the entire book of Colossians, when Paul implores us to set our minds on things above, ultimately, we are being called to think, to meditate, and to act on the reality that Jesus is supreme. Not to set our minds on the below thoughts of the world that Paul warns us against. So how do we seek things above? Quite simply, we seek Jesus together. We seek him as we worship together on Sunday mornings. We seek him whenever we study God's word in Bible studies like the well or spice or kairos. We seek him in times of community prayer here at the church or on Zoom. We seek him as we serve on ministry teams here at Hillside or as we support ministry teams around the world. And soon we'll be able to seek Jesus together in new small group opportunities that will be offered here at Hillside. We seek things above whenever we seek Jesus together. Jesus is risen. He is supremely above all. He is reigning in heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of God. And he is coming back. Our distinctly Christian perspective on life is grounded on these Jesus realities. A strong mental view of Jesus will protect us from threats to our faith. Whether those threats come from a pandemic or come from assaults from false teachers, worldly philosophies, or pop culture, as we set our minds on those realities, we're embracing our marvelous hope in Christ. Hillside Covenant Church, let's seek the things above and set our minds on the most excellent realities of our Lord Jesus so that together we can give the world a light-filled perspective of Jesus and the gospel. Let me just close us with a doxology from the Epistle of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before his presence in, of his glory 
with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.